Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. In 1897, Count Dracula rose from his red satin-lined coffin to put fresh blood, so to speak, into all things haunted, aided by his vampire friends. Bram Stoker, the Irish author of Dracula, could not have begun to imagine his book's popularity and longevity. It provided material and impetus for the publishing and tourism industries, and later, the film industry, over the next century. From Halloween celebrations and ghost hunting on an international scale, to Fang films, Dracula-based tourism, and the Gothic horror publishing genre, it seems that the world's most popular spook really has achieved immortality. Before we heard of the Count and his world of vampirism, Hauntings were often dismissed as folklore and countryside tales, whether French, Danish, Swedish, Dutch or Irish. It was sometimes forgotten, however, that up to the 18th and 19th centuries, scientific and medical knowledge around disease was pretty basic. The process of death and decomposition was surrounded with misinformation. We also forget that people in early centuries did not have artificial light, 24-hour news, medicine, or indeed much life beyond their small isolated communities. Ghostly apparitions were often linked to the blame game. An unpopular local individual could be linked to the appearance of plague or a drought, or crop failure, etc., etc. The challenges and stresses we all faced during COVID, even with excellent medical care and the speedy arrival of a vaccine, have helped us hugely. But stress and fear have been part of the past year in all our lives. We cannot begin to understand the fear our ancestors must have felt during such a time. Confusion, mistaken, attempts to appease the gods, produced a desire to blame and create scapegoats. The process of bodily decay was somewhat sketchy as well. Corpses might be dug up again after burial, sometimes to check for signs of life or fear that they had become revenants. Revenants were essentially walking corpses with issues who returned to earth. To haunt. The word is from the French verb revenir, French for return. Bitter, angry, and vengeful, a revenant spirit returns in a body, usually their own. Ways of coping with this ultimate horror, a walking corpse, had surprising national similarities at a time when the old ways were being replaced with Christianity. The Danes had their dragars, again walkers, and their eptergangers. The French 
had their revenants, and the Irish and English used the phrase as well. The Germans had their Nachtzerers, night walkers. The general way to deal with these entities, once they had been identified, started by cutting off the head. A reason, of course, for opening the grave. What people found there was sometimes misconstrued. A ruddy complexion, blood around the mouth, an engorged body some weeks after death are signs of decay, not feasting and celebration. Noises at night could be gases leaving the body. Howls could be from wild animals trying to dig it up to eat it. A stake through the heart and burial upside down were common remedies after decapitation, finishing off with a sword made from a yew tree through the heart. The Germans, however, with the efficiency for which they are noted, took no chances. The corpse's big toes were tied to other toes to impede movement. The coffin was then spun around several times so that the disoriented and dizzy ghost no longer knew which way was up and had long lost any sense of direction. The corpse was then buried upside down. In the case of crypt burials, the entrance was bricked up. It's a case of get out of that one if you can. The practice of stake, decapitate and cremate was used in many cultures. Here, the best known revenant was the Avertak. As with any good ghost story, there are several versions. The Avertak is associated with the parish of Slaktavrti in County Derry. A monument stands there to him, the evil dwarf. Now this guy was a particularly unpleasant and cruel being, even jealously spying on his wife and falling to his death in so doing. But he had powerful magic. He returned from the dead to the horror of the locals who had buried him standing. The locals then brought in a local chieftain, but his killing at the Avertak also failed. However, the chieftain consulted a druid who told him that as the Avertak was already dead, the only remedy was to pierce his heart with a yew sword, behead him, and then bury him upside down. This new magic worked and peace was restored. There are also versions in which the Avertak demands bowls of blood, like a vampire, and needs a very heavy boulder placed over his grave to lock him in. Burial was a dangerous business back in those days, and the fear of being buried alive was everywhere, and it did sometimes happen. Many ghost stories relate details of corpses' skeletal fingers desperately seeking a way out of their graves. Remember, Many burials were not six feet under back then. Graves were much more shallow. One such incident occurred at the Abbey of the Black Hag in Limerick. Now there's an address to conjure with and a history to match it. The last abbess in charge at St. Catherine's was accused of black magic by the terrified local populace. 
She was also noted for her sexual proclivities. The local Earl of Desmond complained also that the nuns were loose and dissolute. Pope Martin V ordered closure of the Abbey in the 16th century. However, the Earl soon had other things to concern him. Constantly escaping from feuds between the Desmonds and the Butlers, his Countess was seriously wounded by an arrow. The Earl thought her dead and arranged her burial in some style beneath the altar in the old main chapel. However, the Countess was not dead, but awoke with horror to find herself buried alive. Some say that her skeletal hands could be seen long afterwards, desperately trying to claw her way out of her coffin. It is also said that her screams for help from her husband still echo around the chapel. Ireland has several previously undiscovered burial grounds, which are starting to draw international archaeological interest. They give us glimpses into a time when pre-Christianity was challenged by the new religion and many of the old ways seem to be under threat. During the early 2000s, archaeologists at the Institute of Technology in Sligo discovered two skeletons with stones wedged in their mouths at Kiltsheen in County Roscommon. These were buried some 1300 years ago and the stones were wedged in their mouths to stop them becoming revenants. These graves were of what are known as deviant burials, meaning that they deviate from the norm. They were placed sometime in the 1700s at the site overlooking Loch Key in Kiltasheen. In all, 137 skeletons were excavated from among the 3,000 burials, many of which were on top of other bodies and had been placed there over several centuries. The project was visited by the Revealed series for Channel 5. Other such international sites contain bodies who were not buried in the Christian fashion, east to west, and also show violent handling at some stage. Arms and legs were broken and the bodies were clearly weighted down with boulders. Back then, there was an understandable wariness of the undead. That is clear from folk tales. However, thanks to these finds by archaeologists, we now have evidence of that reality in everyday life. Of course, the undead and those on the other side weren't always associated with fear and horror, though they were to be respected at all times. Life then wasn't all doom and gloom. The ancestors knew how to party. The main action in Ireland was to be found at the ancient festival of Samhain. We know it as Halloween. According to folklore, it can be traced back to the Celtic festival and his old Irish for summer's end. It was halfway between the light of summer and the dark of winter. It marked the end of harvest, 
and also the start of the Celtic New Year. And on the eve of Samhain, the celebrations started. There were two main centres, both in County Meath. One important hub was the Hill of Ward. The ancient hill was used for gathering and celebration for over 2,000 years with the lighting of fires on Samhain Eve. The other site was the Mound of Hostages at the Hill of Tara. There, the Samhain Dawn illuminated the chamber, aligned with sunrise, and this also occurs at a cairn at Loch Crewe. The sun was now in the underworld, and fire was a celebration. It was thought that time stood still during this period, and that the world was in darkness. It was also the time of year when the veil between the living and the dead was at its faintest. Participants in Samhain left out offerings for the dead, food outside the door, a space at the table. Despite that, there was also a worrying aspect for participants, because if their own ancestors could return, then so could others, including evil and demonic spirits. Yet the Druids of Ireland gathered at the Hill of Ward each October the 31st to light the first fire nationally. All other fires had been put out that day. Then, when the Samhain fire was lit, others were relit all over the country. Fires symbolised the sun and prepared the way for the winter months. There was plenty to give thanks for. The harvest was in. But winter was at hand, and just like us, people knew that meant harsher weather and potential illness. So grain had been stored safely, berries dried, meat prepared. Of course, not all the celebrants were benign. Spirits and demons could pass. This was just one reason for dressing up, often as pukas. Pukas were shapeshifters, mischievous. They could appear as human or animal. They could be malevolent or kindly and helpful. Many people dressed up to frighten the spirits. Some placated the gods and ancestors by giving food donations to the poor. But it was also a time to give thanks for the meat, the grain, the vegetables and the alcohol from the grain, plus storytelling and music in readiness for the challenges of winter. The brave, some said foolhardy, went into churchyards at 12 midnight to see the spirits of those who had died during the coming year. The ancestors might also put in an appearance, risky if they did not like their offerings. They might try for revenge or to take relatives back with them. It was also said that girls who looked at their reflections would see the man that they would one day marry. Of course, the devil might also be at hand. Many felt that you were much safer at home. It was certainly unwise to be out and about alone, as not all spirits were benign. Places to especially avoid were any connected with boundaries. Samhain was, of course, the boundary between the dead and the living. Bridges, crossroads, property boundaries were somewhere to keep away from. Travelling with Expressway and your free travel pass is made easier with a reserved seat. When booking journeys at expressway.ie, make sure to select seat-only reservation free travel scheme and pay just €2 Euro per trip to guarantee your seat. 
Bookings can also be made from ticket machines in stations and priority boarding will be given to those who book in advance. Travel without a booking is still more than welcome, if you prefer, provided we have space on board. Take it easy with your free travel pass and expressway.ie. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones. Make friends with innovation. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times, the magazine and website for people who don't act their age. Or maybe you have a loved one or a friend who you know would love to read more. You can buy a subscription and have the magazine delivered direct to their door. To subscribe to Senior Times, visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash senior times. The Morrigan was around as well. The Morrigan favoured Samhain, appearing as a crow. She was a goddess of war, as well as other forces, and could predict outcomes of battles hovering over the battlefield. The most famous Irish ghost is, of course, the Banshee. She emanated as a beautiful young girl, or more commonly as a hag with shredded dress, matted red hair, red eyes, yellow fingers, rotting teeth. In short, a woman in need of something of a makeover. The Banshee's cries heralded death, often of family members. There were also several animal spirit messengers. Hares were witches in disguise. Crows and ravens were birds of ill omen. Butterflies, on the other hand, were returning souls of the dead. The humble bumblebee was respected. It should never be offended or the honey supply would dry up. We can also see the influence on Stoker of the Dirk Du, sometimes called the female Abertark. She was born in County Waterford and as a very beautiful young girl, fell in love with a young farmhand. The pair hoped to marry. However, her father, well aware of the girl's beauty and the custom of arranged marriages, set up a betrothal for her with a rich local chieftain with a very unpleasant reputation. But the dowry was large. His daughter and her young lover were heartbroken, but the wedding went ahead. It quickly became clear to her that she was nothing but a trophy wife. She quickly grew to loathe her husband. He apparently enjoyed drawing blood from under her pale skin. She was a fair-haired beauty. In her misery and loneliness, she stopped eating and naturally died. Buried in a modest grave with only her old lover caring about her, rage finally gave her the strength to burst out and seek and kill both her husband and father. She sucked the blood from her husband. It energized her and created an insatiable hunger for more. She sadly forgot about the love of her old youthful fancy. Instead, she now had a hunger for blood that could never be quenched. She used her great beauty to lure young men into dark corners using siren song, 
and then drained them of blood after promising them love. And then she suddenly disappeared. Her grave remains, it is said, under Strongbow's tree in Waterford. But where the dear do is, nobody knows. Or indeed, if she is still prowling the countryside, seducing unwary young men with her beauty and song. These were the tales that the young Bram Stoker grew up with, many told to him by his mother during his bouts of childhood illness when he was bedridden. He grew up in Dublin's Clontarf, and his mother also told him of the history of the nearby suicide's graveyard near to Ballin Ballybock Bridge. The crossroads at Ballybock Bridge had seen the hanging and stakes through the heart of captured highwaymen. The notorious Larry Clinch was killed and hanged here, and his ghost is still seen. But until well into the 19th century, suicide was a very serious crime with wide-reaching consequences. Of course, if you were dead, you could not be prosecuted. However, your property would be seized by the Crown and your possessions would be forfeit. There were also religious consequences. Suicide against, was against Christian law in both the Catholic and Protestant churches, as well as others. And those who killed themselves deliberately could not have full Christian burial in consecrated ground. Nowadays, there is special interest and research into what are called crisis apparitions. These are the spirits of distressed and displaced, the wandering suicides who sometimes return to their old home and surroundings. But back then, it was seen as a crime against both God and men. Legally, anyone who assisted you in a suicide was also guilty of a crime and would face justice. Until 1823, victims were buried at night with a stake through the heart to prevent the spirit leaving the body, often at a crossroads where unconsecrated ground was often set aside. Highwaymen were also buried at crossroads. In 1872, an act ensured that the victim's money was no longer forfeit. However, the only defense was misadventure put by an experienced and very expensive solicitor. Another option was to find a sympathetic coroner who accepted a plea of misadventure. In 1836, the first women's prison in the British Isles was opened at Grange Gorman in Dublin, and several women who had attempted suicide were sent there. Of course, there were other wider repercussions. Your family faced social disgrace and future marriage prospects for any children were affected. Any hint of mental instability ruled out many future marriages. Suicide ceased to be a crime in 1961 in the UK and 1993 in Ireland. So overall, it could be said that Bram Stoker's world certainly gave great opportunity for many thoughts which were fruitful but another Irish author was also inspired by vampires. Sheridan Le Fanu wrote Carmilla in 1872 as a Gothic novella, and it's one of the earliest vampire stories. It tells of a young woman preyed upon by a female vampire. There's true Gothic style here, a supernatural figure 
ancient castle and a strange atmosphere. After studying at Trinity College, Stoker entered the Irish Civil Service. Theatre, however, remained an interest with him, and he wrote a review of actor Henry Irving during a Dublin performance. This led to an invitation to Dublin's Shelbourne Hotel to meet the actor and famous impresario. A job offer followed, and Stoker moved with his wife to London to become Irving's PA and business manager of the Lyceum Theatre. He travelled widely with the company, but ironically, not to Eastern Europe. Some friends told him of a subscription library which held details of an Eastern European story of a boat arriving at Whitby in Yorkshire with crates of earth and a large dog. Added to his thorough research into Eastern Europe, Stoker had copious material for a horror story with an iconic hero. All of his observation, investigation and background memory produced a makeover for ghost stories involving a vampire. No stench in the graveyard here. No mad eyes or blood-stained rags either. Count Dracula was an Eastern European aristocrat, a boyar. Well-educated, urbane, sophisticated, charming rising from his silk-lined coffin, entailing worthy, worthy of Savile Row. He was accompanied by what had been called the Brides of Dracula. No hags in rags here, with permanent bad hair days, rather sexy, indeed hot, young women with a great line in seduction. However, the Count left them smouldering at home when he travelled. Well, let's face it, these were high-maintenance girls. They would have needed a boat of their own for the laundry, grooming, hair, makeup and wardrobe, plus their servants, of course. They didn't travel light. Dracula took instead 50 crates of his native earth. The guy clearly believed in creating a home from home for himself. Today, this would raise interest and eyebrows at international border control. But back then, traveling with one's own earth seems to have been perceived as a personal eccentricity. What was noted by critics and readers, however, was the fact that there was a distinct contrast made between Western and Eastern European cultures. The West appears as ordered, sophisticated, contemporary, technologically aware, opposed to the wild, dangerous and sensual East, which unlike the nation states of the West had its populations made up from many races and ethnicities, a point not lost on modern commentators. The two also differed in attitudes towards women. Western women were portrayed as the ideal of pure femininity, the gentle self-sacrificing mother. Eastern women appeared as unashamedly selfish and sexual. Alarmingly for Victorians, Western women seemed to find their sensual side very quickly when they travelled east. The early 19th century saw a rise of interest in the supernatural, plus the line between life and death. Polydori's The Vampire, based on Lord Byron, created the seducer vampire. Mary Shelley's masterpiece, Frankenstein, explored the curiosity about whether science and technology can go too far. Bram Stoker, however, combined his imagination with legends he'd grown up with. 
and serious research into his subject. But it turns out that we have only part of the story, literally. The question now is, was Dracula actually a true story? We have a quote from Stoker that could have a different aspect. I am quite convinced that there is no doubt whatsoever that the events here described really took place, however unbelievable and incomprehensible they might appear at first. It seems that the book's original preface was cut back by some 100 pages. This was the period in London just after the Whitechapel murders. So was public fear and stress high enough already without adding more? But contemporary detailed research has posed some intriguing questions. Was Jack the Ripper known to Bram Stoker? Was he in fact the inspiration for Dracula? Was Dracula based on another vampire? Jokers also got onto the case. Was the story in fact the result of a nightmare following a very good meal for Stoker of dressed crab? In the 1980s, the original manuscript containing round about 540 pages of the novel was found in a Pennsylvania farmhouse. How it got there remains a mystery, but it was acquired by Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen. In 2009, Stoker's great-grandnephew, Dacher Stoker, published a prequel to the book. Interest has been re-fired and only any new findings behind the book may prove almost as fascinating as the story itself. By the time that Hollywood discovered the lure of the Eastern vampire, erotic had been added to exotic and both literary and film genres appeared. Dracula has been the leading role in some 160 films, second only to Sherlock Holmes. As a subject, he shows no signs of slowing down. Top ghost and horror genre films are some of the greats and have been so for the last century. Nosferatu, dating from 1922, is a German film version of Dracula and heavy on horror. Dracula himself made it onto the screen in 1931, helped by Bela Lugosi, who could scarcely speak English, but his stilted speech and his mesmeric stare created an iconic version. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein made it on screen in the same year. But Gothic horror wasn't restricted just to the past. The Innocence from 1961 was based on the Henry James book, The Turn of the Screw, and is a superb psychological thriller. The Shining allowed Jack Nicholson to portray the horrors of a recovering alcoholic working as a caretaker in a very haunted hotel. Ghostbusters in 1984 allowed spooks to be funny, whilst the latest, The Woman in Black, has the classic ingredients of the successful stage play and all the trimmings, the period setting, empty haunted house, frightened locals, and one very angry ghost. High drama and emotion, fear, suspense and danger are all part of the lure and attraction of spirits. But when it comes to vampires, what sets them apart from other ghosts? Why do we remain so interested in them? Is it the lure of the unknown, the forbidden, the unpredictable? They cross all sorts of boundaries. 
They aren't into long-term relationships. They're masters of doomed love. Is it the lure of the ultimate bad boy? No, it's apparently because they're outsiders. Sexy, powerful, not what they seem. They know death. They're unconcerned about their popularity. They will live forever young and they have great dress sense. Now, that's vampires for you. We've all got a stake in them.